Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Devada, you with you in Berlin, Germany. And as always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. And so, there won't be any specific data points in today's podcast, and that's because we are coming up on two years of doing this podcast, and uh, we thought we'd do a special episode or two. But first, in honor of this special anniversary, we wanted to let you know about a deal we're offering. As you may know, our show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers, and if you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, you should consider subscribing. In fact, listeners to Ones and Twos get a 50% discount. That is 5-0, discount on your first month or first year. All you got to do is go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZ at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. So foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and T-O-O-Z-E and you'll get 50% off. So I guess first off, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those listeners who took me seriously when I repeatedly said over these past two years that you should contact us with questions or suggestions for segments or just any other comments. Uh, of course, for all those requests, uh, we've less often gotten around to addressing those questions and comments, but that's what we're here for this week and next week. So two whole episodes devoted to your questions. And the range of those questions was remarkable, spanning from the aviation industry to Australian central banking. We also have several questions that clustered around a, a few big topics. So we're going to start out with segments comprised of listener questions on China this week and inflation, broadly speaking, next week. So with no further ado, let's dive right into China. So the first question comes by way of Anthony Tello. And he asks, if China were to go on the offensive economically, what are some of the things that they might do? There was once this big worry about the dollar crisis precipitated by Chinese sell-off of U.S. debt. Is that still a risk? Is the Biden administration playing into possibly economically offensive China? And what are some of the ways that they can inflict damage on the U.S. economy the way we damaged Huawei? Yeah, this is a great question, and and great to have the throwback to the, um, you know, the sort of uh, economic war, financial war fantasy of the early two thousands, because that was indeed a powerful idea. As China rose in the world economy, it acquired more and more claims on U.S. assets. And we'll talk about the mechanism behind that. I think in response to another question, it has to do with the way in which it was managing its exchange rate and piling up these claims on the US. And so there was always this fear once they hit the trillion dollar mark or something like that, that China would lose patience with America's financial imbalances, the so-called twin deficits, the government deficit, the fiscal deficit and the trade imbalance. And at some point would start pressurizing the US, either as a kind of deliberately aggressive political strategy or simply to kind of impose economic rectitude on the US, something like that, some version, some story like this, very popular with on the Democratic side, in fact, of the political spectrum, because of course, it was Republican administrations that were running up the deficits at the time. And that was kind of the fear that then began to unwind in 2007-8, because the dollar was falling, and and it never transpired. The Chinese reshuffled their, their portfolio and moved it into safer uh, US assets, but continued piling assets up 
they reached a peak in the 2012-2014 period. And we haven't seen a collapse since or kind of any aggressive action on their part. If you track the financial news, you'll see that there's been some reporting of the fact that their holdings of US treasuries have fallen very considerably, in fact, to their lowest point in more than a decade. But they appear to just be resuffling their portfolio from treasuries to US agencies. So agencies are the bonds issued by um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the mortgage backing agencies, which effectively have a guarantee from the US government. So they are really just essentially US government debt with a slightly higher interest rate. So what we're seeing is this ongoing Chinese portfolio management, but no sell-off. And I, you know, I think there's good reasons for them not pulling that trigger because they would lose in the process. It's very unclear whether in such a situation there wouldn't actually be buyers for the stuff they were selling. It's not clear really that it works very well as an economic weapon. Um, and that's the issue, I think, with all sorts of economic weapons that you often hurt yourself in the process of using them, as the US will also discover in due course that if you push decoupling too far in the end, the consequences are harsh. The benefits may be concentrated and the costs quite diffuse in the sense that American consumers end up paying more for Chinese imports in various ways or for imports that don't come from China. But if you go to that kind of category of measures, more targeted trade measures, then I think the routes are pretty obvious and the Chinese have already begun to explore them. So one thing is you can stop the export, slow down, impose licenses on the export of um, resources that the Chinese control, like gallium, things like that. So the Chinese do have a very significant position in rare earth processing, um, and they could exploit that. They have sanctioned at least one American uh, microelectronics for Micron, which means that they are trying to limit the components that the Chinese firms purchase from an American supplier, a bit like the kind of sanctions that uh, West has applied under American leadership to firms like Huawei. But I think everyone understands that the big the big prize here, if we're staying in the kind of corporate sector, is Apple. I mean, Apple is not for nothing the most valuable company in the world, the most valuable company the world has ever seen. And it is massively dependent on China, both as a market, but even more importantly, as a site for production. And to my mind, it's very significant. I saw the news going across the, you know, the screen yesterday that um, the Chinese have now asked uh, officials, so people working in the public sector as civil servants, to refrain from buying Apple iPhones because they have decided to treat them as a security risk. And I, I would have thought that's a pretty clear warning shot that, you know, everyone really understands that this is probably the neuralgic firm whether they would go to a full set of sanctions against Apple. I mean, that would really be a truly dramatic intervention and would rupture, one would imagine, all other corporate relations with China because if Apple isn't holy, then no one is. But um, that would be the direction I would imagine this would go in. Wow. So the next question comes from Gary LaRude. He asks, I'm wondering if you see a policy approach that supports U.S. business interests without increasing the country's vulnerability. We've seen what China has done to curb individual freedom in Hong Kong and the humanitarian catastrophe and global impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I don't think we can count on U.S. business by itself to keep Taiwan safe. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating question. It goes to the heart of the kind of shock and disappointment of the recent decade, which, you know, there was a liberal kind of 
premise, a hope, I think, summarized by that 18th century phrase, du commerce, right? That the softness, the sweetness of commerce would, in a sense, tie the world together, would soften national security antagonisms, um, would in the end anchor peace. And, and I mean, we've seen that refuted now on a, in a spectacular way, obviously, in, in Ukraine and with regard to Russia. And, and that raises everyone's anxiety level. And I, I think, broadly speaking, one can't disagree with Gary that there's no way that you know business interests alone are not going to keep Taiwan safe. If mainland China, if Beijing decides to raise the stakes, I think an invasion is an incredibly unlikely prospect, but some kind of blockade, then it will be doing that regardless of business interests in China. So the interests of American firms in that are not going to make a one jot of difference one way or the other. It will be a decision made at the highest political level on whatever the grounds are that she and the Chinese leadership will be pursuing. So how do you stop that? I mean, I think it, it's clear that if you want to stop it, you have to mobilize a credible coalition of deterrence. I mean, one key component you need is actually a you know really visible sign from the Taiwanese that they're willing to pay the price. Um, that's by no means secure, I think, for obvious reasons. I mean, if you were in Taiwan, how would you weigh this up why would why would you necessarily want to put yourself in harm's way there are reasons uh, of course and the hong kong example is incredibly off-putting shocking indeed but but war is a is a different is a different proposition altogether um but i think the the strategy i find most compelling and the proposition i find most compelling is is a strategy of deterrence without provocation so by all means raise the cost to the chinese of imposing a military blockade on Taiwan, but try and do so in ways which minimize the provocation that this causes. And what's really striking, I think, is that a big part of the provocation in the current situation are, in fact, a range of economic measures being taken by the United States against China, which have nothing specifically to do with Taiwan at all, but which are very largely to do with the global balance of power, the broader balance of power between China and the United States, you know, the position of the US in artificial intelligence or something like that, which which doesn't bear specifically on Taiwan and is yet nevertheless very provocative to the Chinese who obviously must regard the development of their high-tech sector as an issue of sovereignty, almost on a par, one would have thought, with territorial, you know, exerting, exerting direct control over Taiwan. So I think if what you were aiming to do was to simply defend Taiwan as a autonomous, Western-backed, Western-partnered entity within China, the strategy would not be a kind of broad-based economic uh, offensive against China, but a much more limited strategy of deterrence without provocation that was basically hard power all the way. Hmm. It's interesting because there's an ambiguity in the question there between specifically focusing on Taiwan, keeping Taiwan safe, and then the more general reference to American vulnerability. Maybe that's reflective of the ambiguity in Washington's policy these days, whether we're, yeah, there's a kind of hard power concern about Taiwan or just a more broad concern about competition and vulnerability in that sense. But the next question is an email from Wright Brian. He has two questions, actually. The first, he points out that China seems to have left communism long ago, despite the enduring party name. Socialism with Chinese characteristics seems more akin to the fascism of Nazi Germany or Mussolini's Italy than it does to a communist state. Private property exists, 
private enterprises exist, but at the behest of the government, state-owned enterprises exist, the military is involved in industry beyond arms, nationalism and xenophobia are front and center. So he admits he's not a scholar on communism or fascism, but you are actually, Adam, to a certain extent. So what do you think about this idea? Is China actually closer to being a fascist government these days than a communist one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about this quite a lot. I find this question really provocative um, and really sort of challenging and interesting because I want to negate it so vigorously. But uh, figuring out why and on what basis is actually kind of tricky because you could say, yeah, I think it's tempting to say kind of at a formal level it's true that there is a parallel in the, the Chinese regime now, I think, bases its legitimacy above all on nationalism. I think that's undeniable. I think it's also undeniable um, that it is to a considerable extent abandoned communism for sure, like the, you know, the, the idea of collective ownership of the majority of assets and is now in a mixed economy mode. So there are elements of state ownership, of social democracy and of just outright capitalism. And that's reminiscent of the interwar regimes. It's certainly authoritarian. It likes military display. But when we get to military display, I think we have to sort of begin qualifying because we get a lot of coverage of China that focuses on military display. And the regime, Xi in particular, seems to be rather keen on identifying himself with the soldiers. But if you look at the underlying numbers, you need to be prepared for a surprise because on the CIPRI numbers, which is the Stockholm Institute for Peace Research, which are the widely accepted, most commonly used comparative numbers for defense spending. Defense spending as a share of Chinese GDP comes in at 1.7% of GDP. And for the US, it comes in at just under 3%. So the US appears to be not quite twice as militarized as China. So now let's allow for some undercounting and everything else. I think it's very difficult to see any configuration of numbers in which China is more militarist than the United States. So America is, you know, nationalist, patriotic, military as well. So we kind of end up in this sort of blurry realm of comparison. Uh, China is definitely repressive. Um, in Xinjiang, I think you can even talk in terms of something approaching you know, measures which which meet the qualification of a kind of cultural genocide, um, but it's not exterminatory of its enemies on a mass scale, either in the way that the Stalin's regime in the Soviet Union was or Nazism during World War II. And, and so ultimately, I end up thinking that, yes, you can kind of tick a list of boxes here. But the mistake, I think, is to think essentially from a liberal Western point of view and to benchmark, to kind of score our antagonists and opponents in terms of a list of criteria, which is largely defined in negative terms, free, yes, no, state ownership, yes, no. Um, rather than thinking in terms of their own logic. And as soon as you think in terms of China's own logic, its own history, its own developmental path, then the comparison just becomes sort of absurd, right? Because the CCP is bona fide the inheritor and heir, proud inheritor and heir of the military and the regime that participated in the struggle against uh, the, for access, right? I mean, I think Beijing was genuinely dismayed when no Western government was willing to attend the anniversary celebrations for the end of the war in Asia. You know, at, at the at the anniversary, and 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 we choose to exempt ourselves from that common history, which they still cherish as an essential part of their identity. Do you speak to Chinese people 
the average educated Chinese is much better informed about the history, the military history of World War II than your average West, well, notionally well-educated Westerner. They can tell you the names of the key battles on the Eastern Front in World War II. They read you know, the literature of the Great Patriotic War, of the Soviet War, and, and to that extent identify with that legacy. So you know, as a kind of form of opprobrium and opprobrious discourse, liberalism can, of course, label its opponents in this way and say, well, if you're nationalist and you're socialist and you've got a strong military presence, well, that makes you look like fascism. But it's, uh, one should recognise that for what it is. It's fighting talk. It's, it's, it's less analytically illuminating or historically illuminating than it is perhaps useful as a form of, yeah, opprobrious talk. So the second question from the same emailer, right, Brian, was what would happen if China allowed its currency to float freely like the American dollar? Would this have any significant impact on its trade, its relations with the rest of the world? Would it strengthen China or weaken it? Is this more of a talking point than an issue of substance? So yeah, what do you think? I mean, I guess by way of background, we could just explain how China's currency is currently managed as opposed to being allowed to float freely. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's where we have to start. Yeah, I mean, it's a common misconception that since the end of Bretton Woods in the early 1970s, currencies have floated freely. It's not a misperception in the sense that the dollar broadly has and the major European currencies have and the Japanese currency has. But if you look at the world of currencies, and even if you weight that world of currencies by GDP, what you find is that we don't live in a world of floating currencies. We live in a world of mixed management in which quite a lot of currencies are pegged. And some, of course, in the European case, have been merged into single currencies, which then do float against the dollar in the end. But within Europe, of course, that's tantamount to the ultimate fix. That's a little bit like introducing a gold standard for Europe in which currencies are immovably fixed and can't be, can't be changed. And China, since the late 1990s, has pursued a strategy of very assertive and aggressive exchange management. Of course, its currency was managed before as well, but it makes more sense to call it managed and pegged now because China's integration with the world economy is so intense. And many of the Asian currencies around it from the late 1990s onwards, following the Asian financial crisis of 97, 98, were unpegged because being pegged was part of the crisis dynamic that led to that crisis. So China in Asia has emerged as a managed exchange rate currency of, of huge and growing significance over time. So much so that people in the early 2000s started talking about Bretton Woods 2.0. So without America's say-so, by virtue of the fact that Beijing had decided to peg its currency against the dollar, de facto China had chosen to recreate a fixed exchange rate system as the frame for the most powerful driver of globalization in the world, which was the Chinese-US, Chinese-European axis of trade. So this is, the, this is the backdrop to this question. And then ever since the question has kind of hung over the world economy, well, what would it, the world have looked like if only the Chinese had allowed their currency to fluctuate more? And this then goes back to the question of, well, hang on, how can you do this? And the key to fixing your exchange rate and being able to do it in a resilient way is to fix it in an unambitious way. In other words, at a low exchange rate against your major trade competitors. Because if you fix your exchange rate at a low exchange rate, the consequence of that is it boosts your exports. It generates a big flow of dollars, for instance, from your export revenue. And then when the market tries to bid up your currency, what you do is you print your own currency and sell it for dollars. 
So you push against the market, but you push against the market in the direction that you yourself control. In other words, you print your own currency, you generate a strong trade surplus, you print your own currency, and you continuously maintain your strong trade surplus and your weak currency by continuously printing more of your currency. And because people want to buy your goods because of the trade surplus, they gobble up the currency that you print and give you dollars in exchange. So you accumulate dollars as a huge pile of reserve assets. And this is the sort of imbalance which China ran from the late 1990s onwards, all the way through to 2013, 2014, when, as we were saying earlier in answer to another question, the accumulation of foreign assets, of dollar exchange assets, stabilized in the China and has held constant ever since, and they've periodically been balancing them. So for most of that period, the answer to our listeners' great question would have been, if you had liberalized the Chinese exchange rate, what would have happened is it would have increased in value. It would have not devalued, but revalued. It would have risen in value. That would have enabled Chinese consumers to buy more imported goods at cheaper cost. And it would have reduced the export competitiveness of China's exports. It would have led, therefore, to a greater balance in the world economy. And that was one of the reasons that people argued for it. Since 2014-2015, as the Chinese growth model has become more problematic, and confidence in the Chinese model has ebbed away somewhat, this bet has become much less certain. And now it depends very much on the particular conjuncture that we're in as to what would happen if we liberalized the Chinese exchange rate. In 1516, as they did small amounts of liberalization, the Chinese currency plunged, and that precipitated a really worrying dynamic, which was a capital account flight. Because there's two things which drive an exchange rate. One is the trade dimension and the other thing is the capital account, the flow of money, of, of investments across the exchanges, searching essentially for yield, for interest rate, for profit, for dividend. And in 2015-2016, um, not only was there a huge piled up excess demand for foreign currency, which exchange controls in China had prohibited, making itself felt, but also the worries about the stability of the Chinese financial system, so people wanted out of it. So at that moment, the currency would have fallen if the Chinese hadn't done what is necessary to maintain an exchange rate, which is not just to manipulate the market by buying and selling your currency and the foreign currency, but by limiting the amount of flows which go across that market, which make your interventions viable. Because if the market was totally unregulated, your interventions would never be big enough. But if you can limit the amount that flows, then you can intervene effectively. And what the Chinese from 15 onwards have done is to tighten up their regulations and then intervene against that defensive screen. In 2020, the Chinese currency was appreciating against the dollar in the middle of the COVID crisis. But what would happen now, we're pretty confident, I think, is that the currency would depreciate. And that isn't because of trade. It's because of the interest rate differential between China and the rest of the world. Because China has not had inflation. The central bank has essentially held interest rates relatively constant and is right now actually lowering them to stimulate the Chinese economy, which is in trouble. Whereas, as listeners will know, since 2022, the Fed has been raising interest rates at really rather a rapid clip. And so now there is a big differential between what an investor can earn on the Chinese government bond and what they can earn on an American government bond with the dollar strengthening against the Chinese currency to boot. And if you add those two things together, the interest rate premium and the exchange rate premium, all of a sudden you get a self-fulfilling process in which it's more and more attractive for people to leave the one, leave the renminbi zone and move into the dollar. So if we had an exchange liberalization right now, 
if they abandoned their pegging, we, we would expect a depreciation of the Chinese currency. And that would be a huge shock because it would, on the trade side, amplified already huge trade imbalances, which have gotten a lot worse since the COVID crisis. If you add all of this up, what I think in summary one would say right now is that if the Chinese liberalized their exchange account, um, the balance of payments and therefore the exchange rate, the consequence would be a huge increase in uncertainty in the East Asian Western axis of the global economy. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, but we will be back real quick to continue answering listener questions about China. And before we go to the break, I want to take the opportunity to mention China Brief, which is Foreign Policy's fantastic newsletter about China. It's written by our deputy editor, James Palmer, who really knows everything you want to know about China. So if you sign up for that newsletter, you'll be informed every week rather than just periodically by this podcast. So the next question is not unrelated. It's also an email question from listener Elizabeth Furtick. She cites an earlier episode of ours that we recorded and asks why we assume that the rise of China will continue. She cites the book that I think has come up in our podcast before, Trade Wars Are Class Wars by Michael Pettis and Matthew Klein, and says this story of rapid growth followed by slowdown or reverse has been seen before in the Soviet Union in the 60s, Brazil in the 70s, and Japan in the 80s. It looks like the same story for China, only worse, she says, because government takes too much out of the economy and consumption is lower than ever seen in a developed economy and still falling. So yeah, have we sort of gotten this wrong or emphasized this incorrectly? Uh, Are we assuming too easily that China will continue to rise? Yeah, so uh, Michael Pettis and I, and, and Matt Klein and I are, are good buddies, and, and we go back and forth on this. And I think there are like three points at least to make in response to what is an absolutely excellent question. And this issue, this question mark of, you know, which bits of history are relevant for projecting China's likely future course is on everyone's mind right now. And yes, if you go for a kind of structural analogies approach to reading the situation, it's un- absolutely undeniable. As Elizabeth says, there is huge structural similarities. The key thing here is a vast excess of investment, which in the early stages of Chinese development was hugely appropriate and generated a genuine transformation of the livelihoods of you know 1.4 billion people. It's absolutely for real. But at some point, you reach diminishing returns, and at that point, and in you know an investment share in GDP of I don't know somewhere between 40 and 60 percent at its absolutely most extreme moment is just too much. And so you get diminishing returns, the debt overhang gets more and more considerable, you become um, you know, vulnerable to various types of shock, and growth overall will tend to slow down, not to mention the fact that your society is wrenched out of shape by a growth model that prioritizes jam tomorrow endlessly, rather than consumption and welfare and utility now. And so you could say China's in that situation, 
And that's not an outlook from which you would project, you know, continuation of long run growth rates. I think there are two things to say in response to that, which I'm going to cluster in my point two, which are that precisely because China is in the middle income position and not in Japan's position, Japan, when this happened to Japan, it's very important to emphasize, we said, it, I think, in the pod episode we did about Japan, Japan had a higher level of measured GDP per capita than the United States when it began to stagnate. I mean, it really was, you know, boom time Tokyo, where the enclave of the palace of the imperial royal family was worth more than all the real estate in California. You know, it was like Japan had become a mega Switzerland or something, just notably richer and more affluent than anywhere else in the world. And at that level, and from that level, they stagnated. China's nowhere near in that position, right? It has a middle income, a high middle, or not even high, like middle, middle income GDP per capita, huge, therefore, unexploited developmental possibilities. It's way off the, the curve of potential. Now, middle income countries do tend to get stuck at that level. It's not uncommon, notably in Latin America. Brazil is a good instance to get stuck at that level. But that then brings us to the second caveat of this middle point I want to make, which is that everything depends on policy. Like The Chinese can see the problem that we can diagnose, and they've said it over and over again that they understand it. And the question is whether they want to organize, whether there is a coalition within the CCP that wants to organize a reversal of their existing policy mix, and they shift across a traverse to a new growth model. And doing so, they face the political economy problems that any society does when it does this, when its elite decides to make this kind of move. That is, there are going to be losers and winners in this process. And I think the central question in Beijing is how that's going to play out. And the very least I think we can admit or should admit about the CCP regime in China is that it's sort of sui generis. This goes back to the excellent point that was asked about fascism. Yes, it's authoritarian, but it's not just any old authoritarian regime. And its track record to date has been really rather remarkable in economic management. And given what they've already done, for instance, in the upskilling of their PhD cohorts in the STEM field, do we really believe that they're incapable of, say, doing the same thing for their more manual labor force, which would produce a huge growth surge if they upskilled several hundred million people in the in the industrial workforce? Now, can they do it? It's an open question. Is it possible? Presumably, it's an option that's there. It's true for any country that nowadays with big governments that your prediction of the development of the economy hinges to a degree on your estimate of what their policy is going to be. And in the Chinese case, I would insist that that's particularly the case. And they just simply have this remarkable track record of being able to make these moves. Um, and that's the question. So I think you need a supplementary set of assumptions and hypotheses about the nature of the Xi regime if you want to be super pessimist. And people hold those kind of views. So those would be the two points. And the third is simply, even if China doesn't grow very much faster than the United States in future, Assuming simply that it does grow and at the pace of the United States, and that really isn't a big ask because China might make 5% per annum growth this year, and this is about as bad a year as they've had, which will be faster than the United States, though not once you adjust it for an exchange rate, which is depreciating. Go back to the earlier question, right? If the Chinese currency depreciates, it makes its GDP look smaller. But underlying growth is actually still more rapid than that in the United States. Assuming China just simply continues at least marginally to outperform the United States, then they both grow and they grow in their current relativity. And nothing has scared, nothing has more destabilized the outlook of the American policy elite more than China just being where it currently is at. 
It doesn't actually need to grow any faster. And as we were saying, again, in answer to an earlier question, its share of military spending as a share of GDP is, in fact, probably lower than that of the United States. So it's not even breaking a sweat yet in terms of its military economic mobilization. And the fourth question, which you know you have to add in, is what is our underlying assumption about America's growth rate going forward? And applying the same sort of structural analysis that you could to China and arrive at quite pessimistic conclusions, you know, it won't be lost on our listenership, that you can arrive at very pessimistic conclusions about the long-run trajectory of American growth as well. This, in other words, is a very uncertain game calling, you know, long-run trajectories. But if the the thrust of Elizabeth's question is ultimately, am I more pessimistic than I was like six to 12 months ago about China's prospects? Like everyone else, yes. I, I'm like the vast majority of people shocked. There are people who all along knew that this was going to get difficult. Michael Pettis can claim to be one of those people. I'm certainly part of the group that is shocked and frankly dismayed by the degree to which Beijing has brought this crisis on itself and doesn't appear to have a plan B immediately ready to go, which is kind of what my assumption was. I kind of presumed, I think, a higher level of technocratic functioning than appears to actually be at work in Beijing. And that requires a kind of ongoing revision of the outlook. Um, but I'm not at this point yet re- willing to kind of buy into a middle income trap, Brazil as a good analogy or Japan as a good analogy. So our final question in this section on China comes from Blaine Wishart. He asks, given the Biden-Sullivan policy of preventing China from getting additional 21st century technology, what can China do to prevent an ever-widening U.S. technological lead? Well, I think what the Chinese are going to do is what they are doing. And I think before we jump to conclusions about a widening technological lead, I think we should put that in quotes, to be honest. It's not obvious that that's actually what's happening right now. After all, the American policies are based on the presumption that that lead was in fact narrowing. And it was therefore essential to act in the really rather remarkably aggressive way they are. I mean, if you speak to the people in the White House, they're defensive about what they've had to do. And they justify it in terms of a sense of crisis. They're apologetic about doing the things they're doing because they know they are, I mean, just gratuitously, you know, trashing the rules of a liberal market economy. And so they go to this defensive place of saying, oh, we're only doing it in a small yard. And around that small yard, we're putting up high fences. And you know, we have to do that for essential national security reasons. That does not betoken an American leadership that is confident that, in fact, the, the lead is widening. And I think the risk is, if you approach this from a national security point of view, that the Chinese will do exactly what they are doing, which is massively doubling down on their investment, hugely prioritizing the microelectronic area as an area of investment and training and so on. And the Chinese have pretty deep pockets. And the other thing that we know that we are essentially forcing them to do is to find workarounds. And I remember when we did the NVIDIA segment a couple of months ago now, I I learned a lot doing that. And I was very impressed by the argument that said, well, if you cut off access to hardware, you know what they're going to do, which is they're just going to get smarter on the algorithmic side. Because if you don't have the super, super, super fast chips, you just have fast chips. You just need to make your software. You need to make the algorithms smarter. And so in a sense, we're, we're deliberately incentivizing the Chinese to find what in the end, presumably, is the more promising route, which is not the endless pursuit of more and more tinier, tinier processors on chips, but smarter logic. And I don't know whether you saw the report, but in the last week, we've, we've seen the teardowns of the latest Huawei phone 
And apparently they found ways of working their way around their inability to import the latest in American and Taiwanese technology. And we're still trying to figure out how they've done it. But apparently the download speeds on this phone are absolutely competitive with anything in the West. And again, I think the the folks making American policy are absolutely cognizant of this, that, you know, whichever way you're dealing with an incredibly resourceful uh, antagonist that doesn't have a very tight budget constraint. And you have essentially declared this to be an existential struggle and they have no option and in fact, no intention of, you know, responding in any other way than taking up the gauntlet, I think. So it's a real race. And I don't know whether the outcome is at all. I don't know whether it's easy to predict. Okay, well, we need to end it here. But thanks again to our listeners for submitting these great questions on China. And if you're interested in hearing more, our sister show Foreign Policy Live is having the Taiwanese Foreign Minister Joseph Wu on this week. I hear it's a great conversation, so check it out wherever you get your podcasts. That's Foreign Policy Live. Otherwise, that's it from us. We will be back next week to address even more of your listener questions. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at onesandtwospod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.